The Journal of Neurophysiology would like to dedicate the following podcast to Dr. Rick Gray. Dr. Gray will be remembered for his groundbreaking research work in the field of cellular neurophysiology at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome to the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. Today, we'll be discussing the article titled Sodium Sensitivity of Sodium-Activated Potassium Channels in Mouse CA1 Neurons. Joining me today are Editor-in-Chief Nino Ramirez and co-authors Dr. Rick Gray and Dr. Daniel Johnston. So let's get started. Hello, everybody, and uh, many thanks, Rick and Dan, for participating in our podcast series. And uh, your lab over the years contributed really significantly to our understanding of the role of ion channels uh, and their conductances in controlling neural activity, how their molecular and cellular properties shape synaptic integration, long-term plasticity, and, uh, and how this intrinsic excitability is a critical component for learning and memory. And that's why you probably studied the hippocampus and also in the past the subiculum and the anterior cortex. Now, in, in this particular study that we're discussing today, you focus on potassium channels, which of course are known to play a key role in regulating the shape of action potentials, bursts of activity, and you use also single channel recordings to study the role of cytoplasmic uh, sodium in the regulation of the potassium channels and how they contribute to the activity. So perhaps you begin by telling the listeners more about the regulation of potassium channels in general. And Rick, do you want to start on this? Sure. Uh, first of all, potassium channels are everywhere in biology. They're in every mammalian cell, they're in bacteria, they're in plant cells, and there's even parts of viruses that can act as potassium channels. So they're, they're everywhere, they do a lot of things, and there's a lot of different types of potassium channels with different properties. In mammalian brain, there's at least 30 different potassium channels have been identified molecularly. And uh, the function of a handful or a big handful of them have been studied at the single cell level. Uh, regulation of potassium channels, since they're so important in every cell, there, there are many types of regulation. They can be phosphorylated, dephosphorylated, A kinase, G proteins. Uh, can affect them. Many have multiple subunits and uh, there are different splice variants. So that can alter how they act. Uh, others are regulated by different ions, such as the calcium for BK channels and SK channels and sodium for the KNA channels. There are also acid sensing potassium channels and ATP sensitive channels that are very important in the heart. Another yeah. form of plasticity is voltage dependency. Some channels are not very voltage dependent. Some are very voltage dependent where they're turned off at negative potentials, turned on when you depolarize and phosphorylation or the existence of different subunits can change the voltage range of activation and inactivation, mm -hmm. which can greatly affect what they do in a particular cell. And then there's what I often call geographical or uh, distribution regulation. A long time ago, people in Dan's lab, Dax and Jeff McGee, found that KV4.2 channels 
you know, there were some in the Soma, but if you went out the dendrite, there are a lot more. And that has been seen for other channels now. So you've got a distribution of them. So something that happens out in the dendrites is going to activate different potassium channels than would be activated in the soma. And so this enormous amount of regulation ends up with how an individual cell acts. And it can change with time, with environment, with any input to the cells. And that's what we're interested in. Rick, wow, that was a wonderful overview. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the McGee paper because that, I tell you, this is, this is like my Bible, the ideas of, of, of dendritic, you know, like regulation and, and, and he studied the IH current and it is totally fascinating. And uh, maybe uh, I would like to go actually now to Dan and maybe you could give uh, the listeners some background to this study because you have a long-standing interest in, in how these ion channels work together for example, affect intrinsic plasticity and uh, how this basically long-standing interest actually led to this study here that we're discussing today. So then if you could give us a plasticity overview, that would be fantastic. Sure, be glad to. So, uh, you know, Rick uh, is definitely more of the channel person than I am. I'm more of the cell person, how channels regulate uh, the behavior and activity of cells. And I think it really started probably, God, almost 30 years ago now, when we started uh, looking into properties of dendrites. And although it was known that uh, there were action potentials backpropagating into dendrites and so forth, uh, uh, Greg Stewart and uh, Bert Sackman paper, I think was 92, something like that. Anyway, uh, but we started uh, looking at uh, the channel properties and Jeff had uh, some papers on sodium and calcium channels and dendrites, and then Dax Hoffman, along with Jeff uh, and Costa Colbert, looked at um, a particular type of potassium channel, where the, uh, the difference in uh, properties and distribution was quite remarkable and uh, dramatic. And so I, I always think now of uh, dendrites as being a mosaic of uh, channels. They're all over the place, but very different spatial distributions. Almost every single one has different spatial distributions. So anyway, that, that's kind of a background of uh, follow-on to what uh, Rick just said, but we got interested. Um, you know, everybody's studying synaptic plasticity, but uh, we <laughs> we kind of wondered whether all these channels, which have such a dramatic influence on the way synapses are integrated and how cells respond to spatial and temporal patterns of synaptic input, we started wondering whether these channels could be have plastic properties themselves. And uh, actually, I think the first uh, real demonstration of that was this paper by uh, that we did with uh, Andreas Frick, who was a postdoc at the time, Frick and McGee, where we saw that after inducing LTP, um, you got a change in the properties of a particular type of potassium channel. And that happened to be this KV4.2 or A-type potassium channel. And there was a shift in the inactivation curve, which was kind of surprising, but that's what it was. And it's probably phosphorylation. So over the years, we've uh, studied many different types of channels. Uh, uh, the first probably was this potassium channel 
uh, on their regulation and activity dependent plasticity. And some of the plasticity occurs in direct parallel with synaptic plasticity. And some use some of the same uh, molecular um, uh, signaling pathways that uh, are used to modulate uh, synapses and amphoreceptors. They uh, also modulate um, voltage sensitivity and uh, expression patterns of uh, different channels. Now, uh, we've also spent a lot of time on HCN channel, which is this hyperpolarization channel. It's a weird channel. Uh, Jeff, uh, after he left my lab, was the first to show it had uh, similar uh, and very dramatic uh, increase in density as you move out the dendrites, but it also turns out to be incredibly plastic. I've always said that the HCN channel is probably the most uh, plastic, and I mean by that activity-dependent plasticity of any ion channel that uh, I know about and certainly anything that we've studied. But there are many other channels that are involved in uh, uh, activity-dependent changes and also changes associated with disease. And we may get into the disease a little bit later, but I, I'll certainly uh, uh, give you a, a little teaser on that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, no, this spatial uh processing is so interesting and and i remember there are some work done in invertebrates where they show that these non-spiking neurons that they have you know like have different parts of the the dendrite that does different things of the same cell so i mean it's it's totally fascinating but it's also totally heroic you know because it's so difficult to record from the dendrite and uh, you know make some implications of how it uh, information is processed so but your study is also incredibly heroic here because you also patched uh, with with two electrodes on the same neuron in the in, in the hippocampus. I mean, this is this is incredible artic, you know, <laughs> artistic. So so very very important. So Rick, can you tell us a little bit? You know, how did you end up studying the sodium dependent potassium channels in the context of the regulation of intrinsic plasticity and and maybe also. Can you tell about how ubiquitous, uh, so how frequent these sodium-dependent potassium channels are in the hippocampus or in the nervous system general? Well, given how many different types of potassium channels there are in the CNS, I thought, well, maybe there's another one that we could study. And uh, Dan had done pretty much everything on HCN channels. A bunch of people done KV4.2. So I was looking for something different. And I was kind of thinking about BK. Got Rick Aldrich upstairs from us, good source of information. And so I started looking for him. And a normal way to characterize at least a potassium channel is to do an excise patch with equal potassium on both sides of the membrane. And that's just a method uh, biophysicists have used to compare the properties between the different types. So I started off doing that, and I saw some BK channels. I kept seeing a channel of a smaller amplitude, smaller conductance than BK. So first I was worried I was doing something wrong. I was making a small BK, but then I looked further, and uh, I saw them everywhere. Now, I, I'm not so good at dissections anymore, and so my people in Dan's lab, We've got Darren Brager with us. And so I would beg slices. And uh, we like doing that because we use fewer animals. And so I had some rat CA1, mouse CA1, mouse uh, prefrontal cortex. 
And the very first stuff I ever did was in granule cells. So I like to do a little in granule cells. And this smaller channel, smaller than BK channel, was everywhere. I couldn't put an electrode down on a cell without seeing one or more of them. I've done other channels. You know, when I was doing calcium channels, you'd get patches. No calcium channels. Put a new electrode on, go again. You know, and you could get them, but not in every patch. Same way with sodium channels. Every electrode, almost every electrode, I put the numbers in the paper, but it was almost all of them. Every patch, this channel was there. And I thought, got to be important, right? Why, why would nature make so many of them if it wasn't doing something? And so I looked at some papers, saw that it was possible this was a channel of the uh, sodium activated potassium family. And uh, I, uh, of course, knew all the work by uh, Len Katzmerich and his colleagues on it. So uh, I thought, okay, I'm going to look at this. Wasn't what I planned to do, but it was different. It was something no one else in the lab was working on. So made it kind of fun. And uh, that's how I started on it. And I started narrowing it down that are these really KNA channels and varied potassium or sodium concentrations and saw that indeed they were. It's really crazy because I, I mean, there's so little literature on, on this. And, and that's why I felt we need to do a podcast on it, even though they're so ubiquitous in the, in the nervous system. And, and I mean, I patched and I always look for the BK channels and because they, they're like these seven pico amper, you know, big channels. And, but I probably also totally overlooked these ones. So, so what does it take to get them activated? And you studied in particular the interaction with a, a sodium potassium pump. So, and, and what does it mean physiologically? If you can tell us about that, it would be great. Well, sodium definitely activates them. And from the excised experiments where I've got a ripped off patch with the cytoplasmic side in the bath, there's uh, no ATP there, nothing for the pump to use. And so I'm looking at, I don't know, the native relationship of sodium to, to potassium channel activity. And uh, that's when I saw they were sensitive to fairly low levels of, of sodium. And I thought, okay, if I see them everywhere, Maybe I'll see them, you know, in an intact cell, you know, because if you just plop an electrode down on any cell, you see lots of channel activity. You know, the cell's doing stuff. I didn't see these channels. I thought there was something wrong with my salines. I changed electrode glass and I just didn't see much activity. And I thought, well, that's weird. If there's so many, they got to be doing something. And uh, several years ago, Art Karner did some experiments with sodium-sensitive dyes, and this was in cortical neurons, I think, but he looked in the soma and the dendrites, and uh, he didn't get a lot of sodium into the soma, even if he fired spikes there. But in the dendrites, you got lots. So I thought, well, let's see what happens in the soma. So I, can I fire enough spikes to uh, activate this channel? And I tried that for a long time. And I would just keep giving trains of, of 10, 20, 50, 100 spikes over and over again. And uh, 
sometimes eventually I'd see some channels pop up, uh, but it was usually after I'd held the cell for a long time and probably wasn't that healthy anymore. And here, here's another aside. Other people in the lab who were doing cell attached recordings of a different channel would sometimes see this channel, but it was always at the end of an experiment when the cell was kind of run down. So there, there were hints there that metabolism was, was involved, but the spikes didn't do much. And from Connor's work, we knew even a lot of spikes didn't let a lot of sodium in because the cell's good at getting rid of it. And another thing that happened around this time is uh, Dan's collaborated with Bill Ross for years. And, you know, I know Bill, and he had published the paper with whole cell patch electrodes. And in his solutions, he had no sodium. I said, Bill, how come you don't put any sodium inside the cell? And he just said, eh, cell's pretty good about taking care of that itself. Another little hint. So I thought, okay, spikes don't get enough in. What if I flood the inside of the cell with sodium? And that's where I did the double patch experiments, where I had one electrode that had internal saline and a set amount of uh, sodium. The other electrode was an on-cell, cell-attached patch electrode. And so the idea was I would patch on with the cell attached, make sure I didn't see channels like I rarely did. And then I would break in with the other electrode and whatever, so, whatever sodium I had in the pipette would fill the cell. And I thought, oh, I'll see something that matches up with my inside out or outside out recording. I didn't. I saw very little activity. And uh, yeah, those were tough experiments. And I expected something from them. And I got nothing. <laughs> so then I thought, okay, outside out patches. I'll rip off a patch, fill the pipette with the amount of sodium I want, and just take measurements with different amounts of sodium. And even then, the numbers I got, it took more sodium to open the channels than it did from the excised inside out patches. And that's where all the little pieces came together. And I thought, oh man, the pump can't be doing anything in a little ripped off outside out patch. But it does, you put Wabane on, Channel activity in relation to sodium goes right back to where it was with the excised outside out patch. And I, I don't know what can be happening right inside the membrane. Now those outside out recordings didn't last that long. You know, a 10 minute recording, you know, a decent amount of channel activity, that's enough to get data. And so I didn't hold them forever. And so if there was enough ATP that was stuck right inside the membrane to keep the pumps going, and so that when I put Wabane on, I'd see the difference. Uh, I, I don't know. I think it would take more biophysics than I know to really study that. But I think it'd be really interesting because, you know, all the stuff we've done with voltage-sensitive dye or ion-sensitive dyes, you know, we kind of look at the bulk phase and assume that's what's going on. And right inside the membrane, I think there's magic happening. And uh, somebody will figure it out. <laughs> that means. That's fantastic. Yeah, no, but it's, it's so important that you tell us the story because uh, 
you know, like you think sodium dependent potassium current is pretty straightforward. You change intracellular sodium and, and vomit goes, and then it's not the case. So, so I think it really tells us a lot about the regulation of and the role of metabolism in regulating ion channel activity. And yeah, I'm, I'm getting very much into it myself because, you know, there's beautiful work done by Gennady uh, Symbaliak, how they show how uh, the pump plays a role in generating rhythmic activity and, and how they, they work. And I'm, I bet you these channels play a big role. So yeah, lots to do for the young generation, I guess, and going forward. But it's also good to, for the young generation to see that, that everybody struggles, you know, like you, you can be so experienced, but yet, you know, well, don't always work. That's, that's <laughs> it's good. always work. These, yes, made for, exactly. these made for interesting lab meetings. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. They I never mean, get bored. You know, the people who work with Dan, no one's shy. And yeah. so there's never a lack of criticism. <laughs> and I had all these experiences like, okay, I'm going to do this now and it's going to work. And the next week, uh, didn't work. <laughs> didn't work. And then at the end, why didn't you think immediately about it? Yeah, that's, that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, we Daniel, all uh, And back, I started out in this stuff and snail neurons. And back yeah. then, reviewers always want to know, well, what's the pump doing? Anything yeah. you saw after hyperpolarizations, changes in firing, reviewers always ask, what about the pump? You yeah. know, so we always had to poison the pump and show we got the same thing. And then at least I kind of forgot about it. I knew it was there. I knew it was important, but it wasn't at the forefront of, of my mind for these experiments. So uh, can, yeah, I, can I add I think uh, that, a little something here? Uh, yes, Dan, Dan, please. I actually think this uh, this idea that Rick uncovered with the pump is one of the more important aspects to this paper because definitely uh, we've all known that there's sodium potassium ATPase and pumps are important, but how well it can regulate channel activity um, by putting into the soma large uh, high concentrations of sodium, yet the pump is still able to control it, and even in an outside-out patch. And um, I, I think that's really, really important. And it also uh, makes me wonder about some things that have puzzled us about chloride. And uh, we wonder whether chloride is also highly regulated. We certainly know there are chloride pumps uh, and chloride exchangers, but how well it's regulated uh, is also an interesting question because we put in chloride in our pipettes and I can tell you that the chloride we put in our pipette, we can calculate what's in our pipette and measure, calculate a reversal potential based on that and external chloride and the reversal potential of IPSPs never matches. And uh, it's as yes. if um, the pumps are compensating for whatever chloride we put in and we still have uh, negative hyperpolarizing IPSPs, even when we calculate it should be depolarizing. So I think the, the pump regulation of ion, uh, ions, although we know it's there, is more important and we probably give it credit for and probably is worth uh, pursuing more, both uh, sodium uh, as well as uh, chloride and perhaps other ions. Yeah, I think this is really an important message. And, and now we all use high chloride pets because it's cleaner and you can you know hold the potential better but you're right it's it's really fascinating and i think what's also fascinating is that these these pumps 
have different kind of time courses. You know, they're like short term cause effects and long term cause cause effects that all could play a role in plasticity. And uh, and I think uh, yeah, there's a lot to be done. I think you're totally right. And and not only in sodium but also in chloride. So do you think also that this relates to disease now? I mean, like you gave us a little teaser already at the front. And uh, well, I mean, one of the ideas long ago on epilepsy was that there was a epilepsy was a defect in uh, sodium pumps. And um, uh, of course, there's a lot of work by Casmeric on this particular channel in Fragile X syndrome. So the uh, FMRP protein that's absent in uh, uh, F in Fragile X uh, binds to this channel and Casmeric has done some very nice work on it. So we know that at least at the molecular level, this channel may be involved in fragile X. Now, as physiologically, we don't know. So I think uh, there are a number of ways. And I think one of the more interesting parts of that is, is um, you know, in terms of maybe future directions and what controls the sodium sensitivity of these channels. So yeah, we know the pump uh, controls the concentration of sodium. But what exactly at the molecular level regulates the uh, sensitivity of the channel itself to sodium? Uh, maybe it's under phosphorylation or maybe there's an auxiliary subunit that we don't know about. And I, I will say that uh, you know, Rod McKinnon has a really nice crystal structure of this channel that he published uh, a few years ago. And when I talked to him about it, he thought from a structural standpoint, that the channel would require tens of millimolar of sodium to be activated. And I told him that that's not the case. And so he immediately wondered <laughs> whether there might be another subunit that we don't know about, or that uh, there's a phosphorylation state that's not part of the crystal structure that uh, might control the uh, sodium sensitivity. So there are many ways in which this uh, channel could be regulated and play an important role um, that, you know, is part of a future direction, I think, uh, in how it may affect uh, both normal and abnormal activity in disease states. Well, yeah, you answered really my, my next question, basically, what are the next steps? And, and also, like, the question, how are they spatially located together? You know, are they, is the pump close by to these channels and, and in different parts of the, the, the dendrite or something? So, so it's a it's really fascinating question. So lots to do. So I think that that answered the question, correct? What are the next steps? Do you want to continue on, on this relationship? Oh, Rick has some more to say on that. <laughs> yeah, okay. What's the next step, Rick? Oh, well, dendrites, obviously. I'm just starting to patch dendrites. It's harder than somas. <laughs> Not very good yet. But, uh, you know, I managed to be in Dan's lab all these years and never do an LTP experiment. <laughs> wow he accepted but, that that's amazing but i'm not going to leave until i do dendrites that's too big a, a, a fish to leave so yeah that that's the next thing but i wanted to evangelize a little bit on channel properties you know casmeric has taught us a tremendous amount about the molecular bio biology of the channel, you know, all sorts of things about how it works. But because of different splice variants, things we don't know in different cells, 
the only way to know how they're going to work in a particular cell is to record from that cell. So we take the baseline of knowledge we have and then say, okay, but in these cells, it acts a little different. Uh, Jaron and uh, Brian Kovac did some experiments on HCN where regulation of HCN was exactly the opposite in PFC and hippocampus. Same channel, same regulator, did the opposite thing. So you never know. You got to study the channels where they normally live. And it may be that CA1 is not a great place to say this channel. It's like back in the calcium channel early days, you wanted to say T-type channels, you looked at thalamus because they were everywhere. Other cells had them, but it was harder to do. But our style is we're interested in the hippocampus. So we'll see what they do here. It may be interesting. It may just be a footnote that oh, this channel does great stuff in these cells, but not so much in CA1. But we don't know that yet. And knowing it would be useful into my sermon. <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, I think uh, the hippocampus ultimately is great for recording in a dendrite, you know, and and if someone can do these dual recordings, I mean, I think, Rick, you, you have the potential for sure. So, yeah, I wish you good luck with that. So that's clearly next steps. So, uh, What, what are the important take-home messages? Maybe, you know, setting, sitting back, you know, like over your career, what, what could be the a big take-home message? Maybe we start with Rick and then we, we do Dan. So, Rick. Oh, my take-home message? Be comfortable with failure. <laughs> I love that. Yes, I, I know. Don't get nervous. Don't lose hair over it. Yeah, not everything works. And... Uh, <laughs> You can also learn stuff from what doesn't work and just try something else. And, uh, yeah. you know, that's how we've been taught. You don't know, do the experiment. Yeah. Exactly. Don't, don't get stuck on preconceived ideas. Yeah. Don't, don't think it's just, okay, sodium channel, channel, okay, should be okay. But it's, it's the pump. Yeah. So, so that was really great. And Dan, what are the important take-home messages for the listener here? Well... <laughs> Uh, you know, it's a, it's a bias and maybe I'm a little old fashioned, but I think it's important to know how uh, neurons uh, work. Uh, I'd like to know, uh, you can talk about circuits all you want, but neurons are the individual units of circuits and um, you have to know how they work and uh, how an individual channel like this channel or another channel can have enormous consequences for that cell and uh, ultimately the circuit. So, I think uh, more more emphasis maybe uh, needs to be placed on uh, how um, single cells operate given their mosaic, uh, highly variable and uh, activity dependent uh, properties and distributions of ion channels. So that's my take home message. Wonderful. And I think it's a big take home message also in, in the context of the whole connectome efforts, you know, <laughs> where the connectome just gives you one side And, That's and right. Not There's so more much to it than just what's connected yeah. to what. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, 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 there's a lot of life behind it and in the cell and, and also on, on the membrane. So, yeah, it was wonderful talking to you today. And, and of course, you're my big heroes for many, many years. And it's a great pleasure to, to get also some background. And 
and see that how failure, you know, doesn't discourage you. And so, Rick, that was fantastic. And Dan, of course, uh, great to to get this. Well, this is great. So, I, I think it's uh, great that uh, general neurophysiology is doing this, and uh, I look forward to uh, seeing other podcasts from uh, from your journal. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot of fun, and I tell you, it's it's always astonishing how much background you get that it's not in the manuscript itself, and and I hope people use it also for for their journal club, so so it gets uh, a little bit deeper into the into the story, how it came about, and and how we kind of like learn from failures, and that is something. You know, sometimes graduate students and postdoc <laughs> thinks, oh my god, you know, it's just me that has to experience it, but we all go through that. And if you no. don't have that nerve, you know, it's not the right thing to do. So, I had yeah. a graduate student once who, uh, I think he went four years before he had a successful experiment, but he hung in there. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. He ended yeah. up with some very nice papers, but he had a difficult time. <laughs> oh my God, yes. I did my thesis in the last three months because it was like yeah, all failure right. until that, you know? It's, <laughs> but then you know when you're ready. You know, yes. because uh, at one point it all comes together. Never give up. Right. So, <laughs> so sometimes I feel like as mentors, we're like uh, psychologists more than, you know, experimentalists. So, yeah, we have to, so you have to go through this. Yeah, Dan and, and Rick, thank you so much. And I look forward to your next paper in general neurophysiology. And then on we dendrites. can continue it. <laughs> exactly on the dendrites with the three, three electrodes on it. Uh, Rick, you can do it. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for inviting me. Thanks. This is great. Yeah. All the best. Okay. Wonderful. Bye-bye. 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 Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.